It's important for us to realize that the Christian life is a battle. That's not all it is, but we are involved in an infinity war against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That sounds pretty close to infinity. And it sounds overwhelming, but that's why we need the armor of God. So while Pastor Ryan focuses on this vital teaching, to complement that, I'm going to be doing a series from the book of Judges where there are many battles raging. The series is called Unlikely Heroes, True Stories of Overcomers from the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word today, and we pray that you would apply it to us personally so that uh, we can experience victory rather than defeat. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Judges illustrates what historians have always claimed, that if we don't learn from the mistakes of the past, then we are condemned to repeat them. For three and a half centuries, the chosen people living in the promised land could not generate any centrifugal force. In their spiritual immaturity, they were like children on a merry-go-round. They were caught in an endless cycle of defeat, and victory, defeat, always followed by some more of the same. Second verse, same as the first. Second Peter chapter 2.22 summarizes their predicament. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. That doesn't sound too good. That's not what we want to experience. We want to move ahead to something far better. So today we're going to look at uh, Judges chapter 3 and find out what happened. Verse 5 says, The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons. In our society, that would be called progressive. They were inclusive, open-minded, tolerant. And maybe they were even talking about reparations for the uh, conquest of Joshua. The Hebrews were neighborly people. Unfortunately, they went too far. They not only took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons, but they also served their gods. And that's where the problems began because the whole world worshipped idols. Israel was chosen to be different, set apart to worship the true and living God. But it's the kids... Hosea found this nice Canaanite girl and, and they fell in love. What are you going to do? We hoped that he'd bring her over for the Passover, but he's with her family at the Baal harvest orgy. My observation is that in most marriages between believers and unbelievers, it's the Christian who loses the spiritual tug of war. But what are you going to do? Well, in times of war, fraternizing with the enemy is called treason. And in God's eyes, it's worse than treason. It's adultery, the ultimate betrayal. 
Whenever adultery is revealed, the victimized spouse doesn't just shrug it off and say, oh, well, what are you going to do? Bad boys, bad boys. Girls just want to have fun. The only appropriate response is fast and furious. The anger generated by marital betrayal is seven times hotter than any other animosity. And that's how God feels, betrayed. Verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, king of Aram, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. When we sin, there are consequences. Fortunately, Israel immediately got the message and repented, and they experienced a new beginning. Well, not exactly. It took eight years of defeat and distress to finally bring them to their senses. Verse 9 says, But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And so here is a very likely hero with an impressive pedigree, Caleb's nephew. Caleb was a, a man of defiant faith, who along with Joshua recommended the immediate invasion of Canaan at Kadesh Barnea, even though they would face fierce and militant tribes, and not to mention the giants. Well, Israel, of course, declined the invitation. Giants? My faith can't deal with anything over seven foot one. And so Israel began to retreat. Forty years later, the next generation accepted the challenge. And Caleb, who was still living, said, I'm going to take care of those giants. And he did. And Othniel was a giant killer's nephew. So heroism was in his DNA. It permeated the deep end of his family's gene pool. But he needed something more than that. So verse 10 says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. It was a decisive victory, which was necessary because otherwise there would be a counterattack. Verse 11 says, So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The book of Judges isn't just about battles. When we act decisively in faith, we will experience victory and peace, lasting peace. In Israel, it endured through the entire lifetime of Othniel for 40 years. Now, you can do a lot of good in 40 years. You can, you can make a lot of spiritual progress in that amount of time. Or not. Verse 12 says, Once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Eglon? Where did he come from? We thought that if we'd get rid of Cushan, we'd have it made in the shade. But there's no shortage of hostile enemy agents. And you should see the latest graduating class. They're all eager to make a difference. 
Verse 13 says, Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. That's uh, Jericho. What an embarrassment for the Hebrews, because those ruins symbolized the sovereignty of their God over the idols of Canaan. It was to be a memorial for future generations. And now it was back in the hands of the enemy? This was a disgrace, an insult to God. But, but at least that must have aroused their righteous indignation. Now we know what to do. We have to repent and turn back to God. Unfortunately, this time, they were even more patient in their pathetic plight. Verse 14 says, The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. It took them 18 years to finally come to their senses and call for help. Some people don't turn to God until they've exhausted all other options. Verse 15 says again, The Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. We need another Othniel, a swashbuckling hero who can send panic through the enemy ranks. Again, the Israelites cried out, and the Lord gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. What? Is that it? Is that all you got? Ehud is our first unlikely hero. Are you serious? Look at him. He doesn't even know his right hand from his left. You see, in ancient cultures, a man's right arm symbolized his strength. The Bible says God delivers his people by the strength of his right hand. Psalm 17, 7, 89, 13, 139, 10. Ehud was a left-handed man. And scholars indicate that the Hebrew words could suggest that he was restricted in his right hand, perhaps handicapped. Well, that condition would have made Ehud the object of ridicule and contempt. He's cursed. He's being punished by God. I can still remember when I was in an elementary school a few decades after the book of Judges. In those days, being left-handed was considered peculiar. And so teachers tried to force Southpaws to convert to a more conventional grip. So by the norms of his culture, Ehud got few encouragements or opportunities. He would be consigned to the practice squad. But God had other plans. He loves using underdogs, those everyone underestimates, the unlikely heroes. Again, the Israelites cried to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. And the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. In fact, Ehud's disability was a unique skill. It made him perfectly suited for this mission. Verse 16 says, Now Ehud made a double-edged sword, about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. No security guard would look for it there. If Othniel had showed up, they would have searched him thoroughly and assigned an armed squad to escort him, but Ehud was no threat. So he just parked his chariot 
in the handicapped zone and proceeded into the palace. Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Well, Eglon, the magnificent, the omnipotent, was eager to see Ehud because he was bringing him more tribute. His royal majesty had been confiscating the best of Israel for 18 years, but he still wasn't satisfied. The world's first billionaire, John D. Rockefeller, was once asked, how much is enough? And he answered, it's just a little bit more. And that was Eglon's motto. More! I want more! Bring me more stuff! Render unto Eglon the things that are Eglon's. And for 18 years he'd been siphoning off the fat of the land. No wonder it says, Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. See, in those days, uh, size was everything. It was status. The bigger your army, the bigger your palace, the bigger your harem. Well, Eglon, the exalted one, the supreme ruler, was the biggest of them all. Maybe reminiscent of Jabba the Hutt. Fun fact, why did they call him Hutt? I think it's because he held the uh, world record for eating two large pepperoni pizzas at uh, Pizza Hut in a single sitting. He would do that almost every other day. Obviously, he wasn't worrying about his cholesterol. And it's interesting that normally the Bible doesn't reveal the weight of its cast. But in this case, there's a reason. I guess Eglon, the alpha dog, the imperial overlord, needed all that extra space to house his bloated, swollen ego. But it would prove his undoing because his morbid obesity made him an easy target. How could you possibly miss? But first we have to clear the room. Verse 18. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet! And all his attendants left him. A secret? For me? Why not? I mean, I am the best. Some say the best ever. Eglon's ego could not resist this sticky, syrupy aroma of flattery. I've got a secret message for you. And so Eglon, the greatest of all time, gained another 20 pounds as his ego swelled. Verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. From God? No doubt he's impressed by my greatness. So Ehud got right to the point. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. It was good that it was a long dagger, because that blade had to go quite a way before it hit any vital organs. Verse 22 says, even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. 
Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. He couldn't even get his dagger out. It just disappeared, drowned in layers of Moabite flesh. You know, if Ehud had tried to fight a prolonged war against the Moabites, there would have been so many casualties. Instead, he went right to the root of the problem. We often just attack symptoms, but Ehud got to the point. Now obviously this is an eyewitness account because Ehud was the only one who saw this assassination. So later when he told the army, they must have roared with laughter. This was side-splitting hilarity. The Hebrews must have been rolling on the ground, holding their stomachs. They felt like they were going to burst. And who could blame them? This was the first time in 18 years they had something to laugh about. No matter how arrogant the enemy is, God always gets the last laugh. Reminds us of what it says in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Look at that. He just laughs. Look what they're doing. Look what they're saying. How many times in the last 2,000 years have the enemies of God not only been defeated, but utterly humiliated as well? It's like the, uh, that skeptic, Voltaire, who hated Christianity and vowed that his writings would make the Bible obsolete. He was confident that Christianity would become extinct within a hundred years after his death. That happened in 1778. So fast forward one century. You know what happened? Voltaire's house was used by the Bible Society to publish God's word to meet increasing demand. God has a sense of humor. Verse 23 says, Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, embarrassment but when they did, he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen on the floor, dead. And while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed the idols and escaped. Verse 27, it says, He blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and all the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down, taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. And they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. And that day Moab was made subject to Israel. And the land had peace for 80 years. Not one Moabite soldier survived, and the land had peace for 80 years. 
80 years to retell the legend of Eglon, the exalted one. LOL. Eglon, the, the desire of nations. Eglon, the name above all names. LOL, LOL, LOL. All courtesy of an unlikely hero, a left-handed assassin, Ehud, the overcomer. And speaking of unlikely heroes, verse 31 says, After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he too saved Israel. Shamgar, now that's a, that's a Canaanite name. So this was no kosher judge. His father was named after the Canaanite god of war and sex. Shamgar wasn't even a Hebrew. And he didn't even have a sword. He was a farmer. The only weapon he had was an ox goat. It would be an eight foot long pole with a shovel on one end and a spike on the other. No one would take notice of a farmer carrying a shovel. He's no threat. He's just cleaning after, after his live, livestock. Well, guess what? God used Shamgar to clean up some Philistines. 600 enemy soldiers were eliminated. All seasoned, well-trained troops. By a farmer with a shovel and a spike. How embarrassing for the Philistines. LOL. I mean, they were a laughingstock for years. He too saved Israel. Another overcomer. 1 Samuel 14.6 reminds us, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. This whole chapter reminds us of our situation. Because like Ehud, we also live in a time when God's people have been overpowered and the enemy is savoring their victories. We've lost most of the battles in the culture wars, evolution, abortion, the sanctity of marriage, the legalization of marijuana. In Canada, you can't even expect to get elected unless you conform to the doctrines of political correctness. You have to set aside the Bible. And if you do have a biblical worldview like creation, what university is going to hire you? And you can't be a judge if, you're, if you believe in traditional family values. And so we've been outmaneuvered, outnumbered, and overpowered. But God has yet to make his move. So what's taking him so long? Well, like ancient Israel, maybe he's waiting for his people to repent. You see, the real problem is not out there in the government or the media or the universities. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the forces that influence and tempt us and seduce us and feed our flesh. The real problem is not out there. It's in here. That's where we find our worst enemy. A British newspaper held a, contents, a contest and the prize was to be awarded for the best answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? And the winning entry was submitted by a Christian author named G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote, I am. That's the problem. 
You see, we have within us a big, fat eglon. It's what the Bible calls the flesh. As believers, we have a dual nature. We have an old, sinful nature that loves to sin and a new spiritual nature that can't sin because it's God's nature within us. And there's no possible way for peaceful coexistence. Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. In other words, start counting calories and put Eglon on a starvation diet. Don't even provide him with minimum rations. You know, he'll probably find enough scraps to maintain his eligibility as a flyweight contender. Just don't let him bulk up and make it into the heavyweight division where he can do some real damage. If you're not a strict dietitian, he will soon expand to sumo size. And see, that is our problem. Feeding the flesh more and more and more with movies and, and music and video games. Much of the internet is an all-you-can-eat buffet for the flesh. And that's why Eglon keeps getting fatter and his ego expands and his influence grows. What we need is some unlikely heroes with killer instincts to become assassins. To do what Paul says in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. When we do that, we join the ranks of the overcomers. Because before righteousness can return out there, it has to be established within us. So here's the plan. Isolate the target within you. Where is Eglon? Grunting and sweating and gorging himself on the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Isolate the target and then strike a blow for righteousness. Don't just wound him. Don't just threaten him. Terminate him. Let's make this practical. The question is, what is one habit of the flesh that you have to eliminate? Let's start, just start with one. What's one habit of the flesh we have to eliminate? Maybe, maybe it's some show on Netflix. Or maybe it's the way we use our words. Who is our gossip enabler? Maybe it's our, our attitude. Do we get frustrated with God? What is feeding our flesh? You know, Ehud used a double-edged sword and turned Eglon into shish kebab. Well, we have the same weapon. Hebrews 4 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Allow God's word to penetrate and terminate 
Eglon. And you probably won't have a lot of trouble finding him because someone that size is hard to miss. So what's your target for this week? Strike a blow for freedom and then live in peace. Let's pray. Lord, we have to uh, understand that when we're dealing with the flesh, we can't be compassionate. We have to be absolutely decisive. We can't uh, compromise. We have to focus on what the Bible tells us and live accordingly. Show us how to crucify the flesh. Just as Ehud dispatched Eglon and the result was victory and peace. And that's what we want to experience too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.